This is the GGC Life Podcast. Uh, we're going to have a discussion around what we've covered so far the last two days. Just a quick recap. We had Janet yesterday morning um, opening up some ministry around the prophetic. And we also had Cliff continuing on as well with some prophetic stuff. Then we had Daz as well in the afternoon equipping us for um, evangelism and also preaching the gospel last night as well. And this morning, we've had Michael just opening up the gospel of the kingdom, the king and his unshakable kingdom. And so it'd be great to uh, have a bit of a discussion around any of those themes, things that kind of come up and you think would be cool to discuss in here. I just want to preface as well. We're all from different uh, churches and streams and things like that. So like the reality is, and I think this is awesome, the reality is there may be different um, uh, convictions on stage where we're all at different places. And so... Um, if someone says something, it doesn't mean someone else agrees. We're all, we're all in this journey of um, discovering the goodness of God together. So, uh, but we're excited for that. We love the diversity um, and the stuff that people are bringing from different streams. So why don't we invite up uh, this week's guys. Um, Jana, I want to invite you up. Invite up Michael, Cliff, Dad, Daz. Uh, who else? Do we have anybody else here? Awesome. Yes, come on. Come on up. Um, grab a mic. We'll just sit on the edge here. Hopefully they don't feed. <laughs> um, pass your mic. There you go. Uh, we may need to share a mic or two. Let's see how we go. Can we just sit on the stage? Yeah, just sit on the stage if that's all right. There you go. <laughs> you can share. Very cool. All right. So first question. First question of the day from uh, Pastor Mike Weaver. In Casino, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, um, he's got a question about the shoes that Leo and Cliff keep wearing. He's asking, are these Nephilim sneakers? <laughs> Answer, please. They are getting me closer to the Nephilim height. Glory. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> awesome. So, um, yes, if you guys can... Send through questions. Any questions that come through, it would be cool to uh, use to start a bit of a discussion. Um, first question uh, coming through, which is I reckon might be a hot topic of this afternoon's chat, uh, but this is pointed towards Michael. I think, though, it would be cool to hear from even some of the prophetic guys or any of you um, here on the stage um, if we could expand on the fallen sons and, and daughters. What, he, what was he referring to when he's talking the three rebellions? Um, I, know you, I know you opened this up in your session, but just to recap on that. So who were these fallen sons? Do it. We just had a uh, three-hour lecture in the, um, the back room about this. So uh, it's good fun. That wasn't a three-hour lecture. <laughs> Yeah, just just again, re, kind of um, redescribing who was who. Can you expand on the fallen sons? Um, that like when we when you were referring to the three rebellions. So I assume the questions around the Genesis six rebellion. I, I think I, is that the right chapter yeah. where there was yeah. So just expanding on the ident this this identity we hear of the the sons of God or the you said was it the Bene Elohim. Yeah. yeah, Bene Elohim. Um, throughout the Old Testament, there's this phrase, Bene, Bene, B-E-N-E Elohim. 
which actually the translation of sons of God. So throughout the Old Testament, in every single instance where the term B'nai Elohim is used, it's referring to um, God's family in heaven. We need to understand that there are two families. This is his family on earth, that's us. In the New Testament, wherever the term sons of God are used, it refers to you and I, never to these supernatural creatures. As I mentioned in my message, um, I think I did this morning, the term angel, angelos or messenger, refers to one category or job description of this, the created order in the heavenly realms. And so the, the three rebellions, as I said, that I mentioned was Genesis 11, which was the fall of the first couple, Adam and Eve. Genesis 6 was the corruption of the earth and the fall of some of the heavenly family members. And Genesis 11 was the corruption or the rebellion of the nation, of the nations. Okay. Does that make sense? Is yeah, that, does, does that answer the question? Yeah. So, so we've established here that we're, we're obviously more aware of what's going on here on earth. We've yes. got, you know, yeah. men and women, all that, and <laughs> everything in between. I'm joking. Um, but in heaven, there's not just God and angels, but actually there's God and the heavenly beings. And heavenly angels host. are just the Bible heavenly hosts. The them as the heavenly host. Wow. Yes. Okay, yes. cool. And so various words are used interchangeably. Angels are one category. They're mm. messengers. Yeah. But um, you get cherubim, you get seraphim. Uh, the Bible refers to sars in the Hebrew or, or uh, yeah, princes mm. in, the, uh, in the New Testament. Yeah. So uh, you, get, you get princes. And so the Bible, in, for example, in the, um, uh, Psalm 82 and in Job speaks about the heavenly council. God is a heavenly council within within this created order in the heavenly realms, this family of heaven. God created a family in the heavenly realms. Um, and, they, and they refer to, some of them are referred to B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. It's part of his council. And so you see very clearly in scripture, um, he presides in the council. So if you go to Psalm 82, can I read you Psalm 82 very, very Do quickly? It. I don't want to get into too much detail on this because it's, uh, we go down a rabbit's hole here. <laughs> but um, in Psalm 82, it's an amazing psalm. Where am I? Let me just, sorry. Uh, psalm 82. And if you could open that one Peter passage about um, chapter 3, verse 18, I think. In Psalm 82, this might surprise you. Uh, it says, I'll read the Hebrew. So God or Elohim presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment amongst the Elohim. <laughs> uh, we, we've always taught there's one Elohim. And there's his capital E, uncreated. He's, but he says here, God presides in the great assembly and he gives judgment amongst the gods. Are you with me? Mm. Oh, that should freak you out. I mean, that's just like, oh, I thought there was only one God. God and so God himself, so he says this to them, the, the council or assembly in heaven. He says, how long will you, will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Now he's speaking to his heavenly council, not human beings. It's very clear. He says, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Interesting, eh? Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed because the weak and needy, uh, and then he says, rescue the weak and needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then in verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods. 
you are Elohim, little Elohim. And you are all sons of B'nai Elohim of the Most High. So family in heaven, family on earth. And so I believe in the, in the New Testament where it says that uh, the earth is groaning and waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Um, I, referring to both the heavenly sons, which includes daughters, just language, and the earthly sons. But the, the earthly family are going to rule over the heavenly family when Christ returns. So there were, three, there were three rebellions. That was Genesis chapter 3. Um, so as I said this morning, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. I shared with some, some folk at the lunch break that um, we often take scripture and the cross and we say, well, this is what the cross did for me. But we need to stop and consider what the cross did for God. Because when Jesus said it's finished on the cross, I believe that he, what he was speaking to his father. And uh, when he said it is finished, he had put an end to the three rebellions. And so in, 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 se in the second temple period, a lot of the Jews understood the rebellions as not just being Adam and Eve, the first couple, but also to Genesis 6 where there was the rebellion that actually triggered the flood where you had um, uh, these B'nai Elohim, these sons, heavenly sons, descended on the earth, corrupted the human race, which triggered the flood. Scripture will always interpret Scripture. The New Testament, the book of Jude and in Peter, 1 and 2 Peter, speak of the angels that have, did not keep their first estate, but went after strange flesh, have been judged and they are in chains. They would, so that Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, rebellion. Genesis 6, the heavenly host rebellion. There was a special rebellion in Genesis chapter 6, which triggers the flood, okay? And then there was Genesis 11, which is the nations. That was the Tower of Babel. And so, Christine asked the question, because I, I raised the issue of Jesus died on Friday, Good Friday. He resurrected on Sunday, but what did he do on Saturday? He was in the grave on Saturday, bodily. But the scriptures tell us, so Peter the apostle says this, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Remember, Scripture will always interpret Scripture. You must do that, learn to do that before you go to a commentary. Rather let the Word interpret the Word. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christine said, where do you find this thing about the Genesis 6 rebellion? Um, well, I'll tell you more in a moment, but it says in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God and having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation, which is the proclamation of the gospel, to the spirits that are now in prison, or chained, other versions say, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, so it tells you the context of where these spirits are. These spirits are in chains. Where did they come from? Well, God was waiting. The judgment on them was the Genesis 6 rebellion. He was waiting for the ark to be complete. He judged them. I don't know what war took place, but the good, the good guys in God's family in heaven actually took all of these rebels captive. Now, I don't want to get too complicated. and Maybe I'm taking too long answering the question. <laughs> You're a, you to shut up, You're a teacher. You're a teacher. I'm taking too long. <laughs> so, 
just very quickly, there are 66 books in the Bible, approximately 40 authors. But there are lots of books mentioned in the Bible that are not in the Bible. For example, the prophet that was alive at the time of Noah was the prophet Enoch. And we know Enoch was raptured. He was captured away. He didn't die. It was a, a, the, the, the prefiguring of the, the, the rapture of the church. But Enoch is quoted in the New Testament. And Enoch wrote two books, one and two Enoch. Uh, you can get them online. There's some horrible translations. I think there's one good one. Uh, the English is quite difficult. But Genesis chapter 6 says that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, came to earth and saw the daughters of men and took them as wives. And then they actually produced the men of renown, the Nephilim. Now that triggers the flood. Because God's now going to actually destroy the human race. Except Noah, who was found blameless. And if you look at the Hebrew on the blameless and the condition of Noah, Noah was uncontaminated. He wasn't messed up with all of this. So what I'm simply saying is this, is that there was Genesis chapter 3, there was a rebellion. There was Genesis chapter 6. There was Genesis chapter 11. And Christ on the cross, when he said it, he's finished. He's speaking to his father and saying, all three rebellions that were a reproach against your name, I put an end to them. He made a public spectacle of principalities and powers. Are you with me? So he dealt with Adam and Eve, sin. Genesis chapter 6, he deals with the rebellion of the watchers or the sars or the princes. Genesis chapter 11, he deals with the nations. But if you look at Genesis chapter 11, and then you go see Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's very, very interesting in the Masoretic texts and uh, other texts, but he punishes the nations, divides them up, one nation into nations, and he appoints a fallen prince or a fall, fallen sars over each nation. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture, because what he, uh, the Scripture tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6, but against principalities or sars or princes, fallen princes from the family of God in heaven, are put over all them. Each nation has a fallen prince. Paul the apostle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities and powers and forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Where else do we find examples of that? Scripture interprets scripture. Daniel. Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, I've actually brought you an answer, and I, I was dispatched immediately that you actually prayed. God sent me, Gabriel, to come and bring you this beautiful formula of when the Messiah is going to come. We saw that this morning. But what I didn't teach this morning was that he actually says, but the prince of Persia took me captive for 20 days. Isn't that weird? The SARS from Genesis, from Deuteronomy 32, the prince that God put over the nations to punish them, took Gabriel, uh, the angel Gabriel captive. And then he says, but Michael, who's actually the prince of Israel, the good prince of Israel, the protector of Israel, the archangel Michael, he came and dealt with the prince of Persia and released me from captivity. And then he says, but when I go, the prince of Greece is going to come. So there's this, this whole thing going on. But the point is this, when Jesus went to the cross, he put an end to all the rebellions. And when he said it is finished, he put an end to the rebellions. And so uh, that's the important thing. Okay, so here we go. That's awesome. I hope that answers a little <laughs> bit of that. Uh,
That's amazing. I yeah. think so, when you were sharing this, like even just this morning, it was opening up my eyes to just how, like, because I, I, I get that you said in the back there um, during the lunch break that we don't want to get overly fixed on this, but the reality is we do need to not be ignorant of this either, which is that our uh, fight is not against flesh and blood, but it is against powers and principalities um, of darkness. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about that of, and then understanding, like, we've been given an authority and so it's like on us to then go do something about that. I don't know if there's anyone here that could just impromptu give maybe a testimony or a story of where maybe, you know, it took that um, spiritual warfare um, to see breakthrough versus what you would have usually done in the natural. Is there any sort of like testimonies of times where it's like, you know, you could see the logical explanation of what could be done, but it actually took spiritual warfare putting on the spot that. Go for it, yeah. So you want a testimony of yeah, something? That'd okay. Be great, yeah. So when our daughter was um, about five months pregnant, she suddenly started having seizures and anything like bright lights, so this is our worship director, anything like bright lights, loud music or anything. So it totally took her out. She had um, five kids at the time, so it kind of semi took me out as well because I was looking after our four children at the time. So I was looking out suddenly looking after children. And because she was pregnant, they couldn't do an MRI or anything because they didn't want to put dye in because it affected the baby. But she just literally would keep collapsing. They'd just find her and she'd be having a seizure and collapse. And um, we, we prayed for healing and the doctors were doing everything they could do. My, my auntie at the time was studying our family line. And we'd been praying, we'd been, been speaking healing over everything we, we knew normally to do. Um, and we didn't know of any family curse or generational thing of epilepsy. My auntie, my great auntie, she got in the mail um, the death notice of my great, great, great grandmother who died suddenly uh, of epilepsy, uh, leaving four young children. And we just suddenly saw the pattern. And we thought, uh-huh. This is, is a generational curse. There's something that's happened, that's going on here. There's, there's more to this. And uh, anyway, we were thinking, okay, what's any stress or anything would put Kimberly in, into a seizure and remembering that she's pregnant. So this is all quite, you know, really big deal. We, um, one, one day, we, you know, it's like within a, about three days of getting this thing from my auntie, we... Um, presence of God was really strong in our house and, and Kimberly was staying with us at the time she walked in, the power of God hit her, she just began to slide down the wall holding um, anyway she began to slide down the wall and we said okay now's the time, so we said to her Kim we've just found out this, this is a generational thing and we took her into another room began to pray for her, now she had had a major seizure so she'd gone through the pregnancy, she'd had the baby. When she had the baby, she went into a huge seizure and was unconscious for nearly 30 minutes. She lost a lot of her memory, couldn't remember a wedding day, couldn't remember the birth of any of the other children, uh, lost some of her hearing, and her eyes were dilated differently. One pupil was bigger than the other, so, and she was speaking slowly all the time. She felt as if she was drunk. So this is, this is the state she was in, and she had this um, baby was about three months old, and so she was still having seizures, and, and we still hadn't got to the bottom of it. So anyway, take her to this other room, and we're being to pray for her. And we said, okay, generational, 
um, spirit of seizure in Jesus' name, I command you to come out. And she um, just began to speak in another voice saying, I'm not coming out, I'm here to kill her. And so at that point, we knew we had gone, you know, you can't kind of back out of that sort of, you're, you're like, it's in your face. And anyway, so we just came against that thing in Jesus' name, and it was screaming and speaking to us like in a manly voice. It wasn't her voice at all. Cast that thing out in Jesus' name. And then she just sat up, and she said, Mom, I feel like I'm talking fast. Am I talking fast? And I said... <laughs> And then, and then she goes, oh, I can hear everything. Wow. And then she bursts into tears because she said, I can remember my wedding day. I can remember my, all my children, everything. She was instantly restored. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, I think well, like, there's the temptation to, um, you know, despiritualize de things. And then we fall into secularism. And it's like we've lost one of the things that defines us, which is we can actually, we've been given an authority as believers. So that's really cool. I love that. Um, Janet, while, while we're with you, someone sent through a, a question around um, your session from yesterday. You were um, contrasting universal grace and individual grace. Um, just wondering if you can speak to how, is it universal grace that enables prophecy or charismatic gifts um, this person said they're usually used to thinking about individual grace, but if you can just speak to that, do you remember the contrast of the individual and the... Can anyone else help me out on the definitions? You probably, yeah. I'm, I'm passing it along the line. I just touched on it really briefly, but I haven't studied it big time, and I'm sure someone else has. Does anybody else want to answer? There's a common grace on all mankind, humanity. There's a common grace on every human being. But there's a saving grace that's completely different. And then there's an empowering grace that's for the church. So uh, there is a common grace on everyone. Uh, it also speaks into the providence of God. It reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know? And uh, we've got to learn to tap into that common grace. I mean, you know, that's... Um, as I said, there's a, great, there's a grace on all people. The universal grace, common grace. That's my understanding of that. Does that, I hope, does that answer the question? Yeah, it's cool. Is that what you were saying, yeah. Janet? Yeah, no, that's cool. <laughs> I was quoting Dan McCollum at the time. I'm yeah. pretty sure I said I'm quoting Dan McCollum. Yeah. And so I think basically he was coming from looking through history whereby they were believing more that um, the grace of to prophesy was only coming on special people. It wasn't that everyone could yeah. access that if you were a believer in Christ. That was, to me, from yeah. memory, that was really the angle that he yeah, was cool. coming from yeah, awesome. with that. So yeah, it was cool. like a historical, uh, is where the churches had, the conclusion that the churches had come to. Yeah, cool, okay. You know, yeah, well. because of wrong beliefs yeah. and, and yeah and introduce like cessationism and yeah. things like that okay that yeah <laughs> <laughs> awesome hey Daz someone's shot in a question um, they're saying that their pastor isn't letting them get a tattoo uh, did Jesus have tattoos what should I do <laughs> <clears throat> was that you Michael <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, um, yeah, at the end of the day, you just need to ask God yourself, okay? What I do know is in my world, 
the day that I got baptised at New Brighton Beach at 10 o'clock at night with my mum. My mum baptised me. It was so beautiful. If my tattoos and my funny hair too, really, because that often comes up. If my tattoos and my hair were an issue, when I got baptised, I would have come up with clean skin and a nice haircut. <laughs> but I didn't. I came up looking the way that I look right now. And uh, so from my own perspective, just talk to Jesus yourself. Maybe it's not a conversation between you and your pastor. That almost sounds a little bit controlling to me. If your pastor's going to say, hey, you should wear a nice shirt or don't get a tattoo, maybe if you're going to get something stupid tattooed on you, that's, you know, that, that's wisdom. But at the end of the day, pastors aren't there to spoon feed you. I mean, hello, if, if you want to get a tattoo and you feel a piece on it, then get it. If you, if you want to get a tattoo and you don't feel a piece on it, don't get it. And I'll tell you a wee story. I've got a friend, he's a worship pastor and a tattooist. He's amazing. And, uh, and he's, uh, he's, he, he's a great guy. And he, he, when I go and preach in this town, he always tattoos me. And I wanted to get that scripture in Leviticus where it says, don't mark your body. Because that really annoys me. Because it's so out of context, as you'd probably know. And, uh, and, uh, but, but I thought it was a good idea. And we were driving to the tattoo shop and I properly felt the fear of the Lord. Do not get that tattooed on your body. And that was a moment where I just felt God say, there is no way you are going to get that marked on your body forever. So that was just a little experience that I had. And at the end of the day, just ask Jesus. Ask Jesus. That's great. You know, yeah. I wouldn't mind talking into it. We've been asked the same thing as senior leaders. One young guy, he wanted his whole back covered with this tattoo and Wes just said to him look and the same scripture that talks about not getting tattoos also says about not trimming your hair that you just your beard and the rest of it and none of us have that problem so and it also says you know God says he's got name tattooed on his hand so he said but uh, what I do want to advise you is just think about do you actually want that there forever and are you sure that your future wife will like tattoos and he said, I just want to put those questions before you. And the guy decided not to. Uh, so that's just one, you know, and that wasn't weird saying, not don't. It was just, hey, there's just some things to consider. So that was one thing. The other thing, we've had, we've had a young lady come into our meeting one time, and the power of God was just there, and she had this real yucky tattoo on her back. Well, every time she came into the meeting and the power of God, the anointing increased, this thing would burn her. And she, she felt like this thing was coming alive on her back, and like she could feel it moving and burning. And um, we, we asked her about it, and she, the guy that had tattooed her on her back was actually into Satanism. And so I just want to, I, th I think there's something, because there's a shedding of blood with tattoos, there's something that I think, if someone's going to get a tattoo, you've got to be, you know, like a worship. Somebody who, who loves the Lord who's doing a tattoo, I haven't got so much a problem with that. Someone who's into Satanism and they're cutting into your skin and there's a shedding of blood, I've got a little bit of a, uh, about it. So this, this jolly tattoo, it was like the thing would come alive and, and it was obviously demonized when she came into the presence of God. And so we, we laid hands on her, laid hands on that thing and broke off every curse in Jesus' name and claimed the blood of Jesus upon her and it never bothered her again. It never did that again. But like she'd start to scream because it was burning so bad. So that's just a...
couple of stories. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Daz told me that he's looking at, you know how people do prophetic painting during worship? He said he's going to set up a tattoo station on the side for impartation tonight. I was so if not. You want an impart- a lie. <laughs> if you want an impartation tattoo, Daz will be on stage tonight with a tattoo gun going eh, all night long. So be ready for it. Um, you told me you're going to do prophetic dancing tonight. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Awesome. Um, hey, just on, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of you guys, are, whether you guys are leading churches or you're planted in churches, you're all kind of working through the local church. Uh, someone here is, is asking a question about being discipled in a local church. If people are using the verse, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, to show how they should be discipled, like, and encourage people into submission. Uh, I guess the question is, can I completely follow them, faithfully submitting to them without becoming dependent on them? And what would that look like? Or is there a line between faithfully following someone, submitting to someone as a godly figure and following them as an idol? Like, is there something there? I think there's many, many angles to that. Probably the first thing I'd say is if the person discipling you is not discipling you into Christ, then that itself is a problem. So you've got to make sure, because submission is not something that can be demanded of anybody. It's something you do willingly. But as you're submitting, you should really be asking the question, who am I being discipled into? And there is an aspect where follow me as I follow Christ is true, because if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be setting an example. And if you're telling people to do something that you're not doing, the Bible calls that hypocrisy. So there's a responsibility on the person who's leading, doing the discipling, to make sure that they walking with Christ and setting an example, but they can never demand and should never demand submission of someone else. Submission is given and saying, I'm going to submit. And if you're going to do that, you've got to then ask yourself the question, is this person building me into Christ and into what God's called me to, with the view that any, any parent who's wanting to, to to do it the way God has designed for us to do it, would want their son or their daughter to be more than they ever were. So if, if you're under an insecure leader, they're going to squash you. They're going to make sure you never come up. A good leader will build you into Christ and make sure that you can probably do what they do even better than they do it and not be hassled about that. So that doesn't answer the whole question, but I think that's just a few key thoughts I would put into that that others may want to bounce off. Yeah, I think I think very much the same thing is you want to, submission is given, and so a leader should never lord over the flock. The Bible says we should be good examples. Shepherds should lead by example, but never lord over the flock. So we should lead to the degree that you are willing to submit to the lordship of Jesus. So I, we can't take what you don't give. So we can't, you know, we've got, no, we've got nothing to fall back on. We can't use frets. We can't use manipulation. We can't use, if you don't do this, this is going to, you know, like, this is the consequence that I will put on you. So that's definitely what you're talking about, the submission part. It's got to be given. And um, to me, we're trying to lead people out of revelation. And so we want people to see things when they walk in obedience. It's out of the revelation that you see that you're submitting to the Lordship in that area of the Word of God. Um, so basically, we give people the freedom. If we're leading you astray, and you can biblically prove that we're leading you astray, then don't obey us. Because we've got no authority outside of the Word of God. Does it make sense? So, but you've got to be able to show us out of the mouth of two or three witnesses in the Bible, not just one little script, isolated scripture. Yeah. Just as a son in a house, 
I just, yeah, I'll, I'll pass over to you, Mike, in a sec. Just as a signing house, I just want to say, like, I love that there's leaders like that, that are, they're releasing, they're not controlling, and then it's on us as sons or daughters to also then have a faith, I think, to trust that sometimes we won't agree, but if it's not unbiblical, then there's almost a faith required to, to follow if we see the fruit on your life. And we're like, you know what? I don't necessarily agree with this. I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. But I do trust the fruit on your life. And so maybe there's growth that I still need to go through. And I've, I've, maybe there's something I've agreed with the wrong revelation here. I've, I've misunderstood this. I haven't caught this yet. Um, but I'm being discipled by someone that I believe is further along the journey than me. And so there's, there's bound to be things I disagree with you on, but I trust the fruit on your life. So there's definitely just as it like, I'll say it on the other side. I think it is important for us to catch this idea of, you know, sometimes I'm not going to agree and I'm going to choose submission in faith. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. Yeah. Um, just looking at Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6 speaks about the armor of God and it says, um, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God. We love to put on the full armor of God. But the context of, of chapter 6 is chapter 5 and, uh, and, and the chapters before. And it starts off speaking about mutual submission. Um, there's security and safety in submission. Um, and I know for women, it's a big challenge. The word submission is like a swear word today. It's a terrible thing. But um, it's interesting because... In verse 22 of chapter 5, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Who's that verse addressed to? It's to wives. So if all the men would just put their fingers in their ears for a moment. This is not for you. This wasn't addressed for you men. It was addressed to the wife. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. The next verse says, and this is not for the wives. So the wife shouldn't be listening to this. It says, Husbands, love your wives. And then it says, children, obey your parents. So then submit to your leaders, etc., etc. There's a battle formation. There's this um, submission is for our safety. Submission is for our security. Submission is for our growth. It's healthy. Uh, mutual submission across the board. Um, we've always said, they clip that, never submit to a leader who him or herself is not in turn submitted to another leader. And so it's a battle formation. It's, um, I know today in the world it's a cuss word because we've got um, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Just leave me alone. Uh, and that's true. Um, and, you know, Jesus demonstrated that in Gethsemane. That one of the greatest principles of the kingdom of God is the principle of self-surrender. And Jesus was accountable. Peter, James, and John he took him with him, and he submitted himself to them. My soul's overwhelmed to the point of despair. Jesus submitted to the lordship of his father, but he demonstrated, in a sense, submission to those disciples that he even led. And so a submission is a, it's vital, especially today, that we practice healthy submission across the board in the church, submitting to one another out of love for one another, submitting to those who are over us in authority. And as somebody said that, if you cannot imitate the faith of those who lead you, then you need to ask yourself, are you submitting in the right place? So. 
If I can add to that, I think also the point that um, Leon raised is a really, really good one, that sometimes you're going to have to just, you know they've got your best interests at heart, you're going to have to trust them. So I've served on two different eldership teams under two different leaders, one of them being Michael, uh, five years at one, six years at another, and then been leading a church for 11 years. And um, when you're sitting in the slipstream of someone else leading, they make it look very easy. You're not facing what they're facing, and you're not seeing what they're seeing. And uh, if I'm honest, on both those teams, there were times where I thought I could do it a whole lot better than the person that God had actually called to lead the team until I started leading my own team. And then I realized, ah, that's what it's about. <laughs> and, um, and then I could see clearly the wisdom God had given them because there's an anointing that comes on that. And so if you've built that relationship and, and you trust them and there's a mutual submission and a relationship that's going on there, you can actually submit to them. And I think the point that Leon raised is really good. If it's not an issue of being unbiblical, then there has to be an issue of trust where you say, okay, this is not something where they're preaching heresy, but I'm going to choose, never be demanded, I'm going to choose to submit to that and go with that. And I tell you what, on the other side of that is tremendous growth and blessing. My mentor, uh, like I said on the other panel a couple of days ago, when he rings, I sometimes have to look at my, well, no, that was a fib. Most of the time I look at my phone and go, Am I emotionally prepared to take this call? Because I know that he's going to challenge me. And I think that's amazing. And he's been my mentor for six, maybe seven years, Pastor Brian. And he is so brutal with me. You see, we don't, especially as leaders, we don't need more cheerleaders. We need people in our world that will front us up and line us up and say, hey, well, what about this? What about this? Because I know for a fact on Wednesday, I'm going to get a phone call. It's going to come up, Brian. And I'm going to go, hey, mate. He's going to go, how are you going? I'm going to go, good. He's going to say, have you mowed your lawn? Have you taken Bree out for a date? What's happening this week with your kids? He's not interested, and hear my heart in this, he's not interested in the ministry over the last 19 days in Australia. He's more interested in the character stuff and what I'm doing to be a husband and a dad. And sometimes I find it really hard. And sometimes I let the call go, and, it, and he gets my voice message, and that's okay. But nine times out of ten, when he does, when I do pick up and I answer it, his heart is to see me finish well. I, got, I was at another conference in Melbourne, and they, we did a panel. And I said something that really actually spoke to me. And this is kind of where it's at. Someone said... All the speakers on the, on the stage, tell me, what, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And there were some amazing answers, man. And I was just going, wow, yeah, that's solid. That's awesome. And I just looked down. I had my ripped jeans on, and I just looked down on my leg where my daughter had tattooed Super Dad here. And uh, they said, so, Dads, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And I said, well, it's actually tattooed on my leg. I want to be a Super Dad. I want my kids to know that their dad loved them to bits, that I didn't sacrifice my wife and my kids on the altar of ministry. And that's what, yeah, amen. But that's what Brian is in my life for. So you guys, you need to find yourself a Brian, not a cheerleader. Find yourself a Brian. And girls, find yourself a Lisa, Brian's wife. A Brianette. Yeah. That's great. Um, 
Okay. Um, onwards. So we're talking about submission. We're talking about being discipled, um, you know, leader, follower, um, mentor, mentory context. What about like brother, sister context, like friends? Um, if we're talking about things, you know, you know how people, you've got this language where I feel convicted about this or I don't feel convicted about this. I've got peace for this. I don't have peace for this. Um, in, in any lo- local church, there's a, there's, it seems like there's a diversity of conviction in a local church, right? Um, what does it look like? The question's kind of worded um, in a way where it's like, what does it look like if I've got a friend and they say, I don't really feel convicted about this, but you do feel convicted about this? Um, is there room for that? How do you challenge things like that if it's not super clear in the Bible? You know, um, there's no examples here, but maybe, you know, I don't know if it's about maybe certain forms of entertainment, maybe it's um, certain lifestyles, all of that. Um, hopefully, hopefully I'm doing a good job with this question. Or if you feel like, like in your, according to your conviction, you feel like a friend is stumbling, but it's not their conviction. Like what role do you play there if it's not their conviction, but it's your conviction? Anyone want to go into that? I think it's always going to be out of relationship and out of faith. If you know, whatever is not a faith is sin. So if I feel out of faith, I can help this person, um, and I want to. I'm just going to share out of love my point of view, but never with a judgment attitude. So I still got to give them the freedom to make their own choice and, and let them see that out of revelation. So as as Michael quoted, that we should submit. To, to one another in the fear of God. So if someone else brings truth to me, doesn't matter who they are, and I get convicted by the Holy Spirit and that's truth, I'm going to submit to what they brought to me. doesn't matter what position they hold in the church because they just brought truth to me. So that's how, that's how we can learn off one another, love one another, pray for one another, persevere with one another. So many one another's in the Scriptures. So, but you're still keeping everyone free. Like in Romans 14, don't pass judgment on someone else's servant. For one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So whatever is not of faith at the end of that chapter is, is of sin, he said. So he was talking about drinking wine, not to drink wine. He was I'd rather not drink wine if someone else is going to stumble. That's that person's revelation. Conscience, faith convicting him. Don't do that because that's not going to benefit that brother. You know, and so on. So there's a lot of relationship involved, a lot of love involved. But yeah, I think that's how the body builds itself up in love in Ephesians 4, where we do share revelation to each other. And then when that person's in a place to receive it, they receive the revelation. And they, they adapt it and they change, you know. Yeah. I think something else that's really important is you've got to make sure you've got relationships in your life where people can walk into your life and speak truth to you even when you don't want to hear it. So you can't build your life away from people that nobody... Because, you know, we have that saying, well, you can't take two tons of truth over a one-ton bridge, you're going to break the bridge. But we always use that in the one context. I want to bring it to another context that you've got to make sure you are building relationships that are two-ton relationships yourself, that someone in true honesty can walk into your life and say, you're going down the wrong road with this, and this is what the Bible says, and you need to change that. So I suppose one of the big questions for everybody in the room to ask is, have you got that kind of relationship in your life? If you don't, why not, and what are you going to do about it? Because otherwise we can say, well, no one's ever speaking to me or I don't know if I've got enough of a relationship to speak to that person. Each person needs to make sure they've built relationships that people can walk in at any moment. So Nova and I have got people in our lives that can walk in at any moment because we've built those relationships. 
And if we've got a blind spot, we can speak into that. So I think the responsibility is not just on the person who sees something and wants to address it. It's on the responsibility of every person to make sure you've developed those relationships that someone can walk in and speak that to you. Michael. Michael, <laughs> um, in your, uh, the session that you brought just earlier, you said that uh, the cross in our lives is the intersection of God's will and our will. Can you elaborate on that a little more? Have I, have I butchered that, misquoted you? You know, I've thought about that passage where Jesus says, if you'll be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. Um, there's two aspects to the cross. There's the work of the cross and the way of the cross. Um, the work of the cross is what Christ did on the cross. The way of the cross is actually living a life of the very thing we are talking about. It's of, number one, it's of surrender and submission first and foremost to Christ himself. And then mutual submission to one another. It's... Um, so I say it's the, it's the intersection or the crossway between the will of God and the will of man. Um, it's not my will be done, but thy will be done. Um, it's what Jesus demonstrated in the second garden. Um, the first garden was not your will, but my will. It was Mary. Um, what is her name in the garden? Not Mary. Eve. There, that's that her name. <laughs> but in Gethsemane, Jesus clearly said, not, uh, not, not my will, but thy will. And so... There's no, the, people confuse that because that they can, in terms of Christ saying, take up your cross to myself and follow after me, he's actually talking about this, deny the selfish life, the self-centered life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, what the cross that I carry is all about. I don't carry a cross because of my sin. I don't carry a cross because I want to be righteous. I don't carry the cross. I mean, that, those are dead works. Um, you've got to repent of dead works. Any, anything we do that uh, um, tries to put our, ourselves into a position of acceptance or, or favor with God, we are, we live it, it is finished. <laughs> um, so that's not the cross that I was actually talking about. Okay. It's living a, I mean, Galatians 2.20 is a beautiful summary of the, of the definition of the Christian life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's a past reality. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives within me. I mentioned in the room a little earlier on that Jesus was referred to as the last Adam, not the second Adam. The first Adam was in the garden. The last Adam, the Bible says, was Jesus. And that last Adam went into the grave. He took all the sin of the world upon him. He took the law upon him. Canceled the law at the tree. But when he went into the grave and came out of the grave, that race of Adam was finished. Now behold, we are a new creation. We are now new. Does that make sense? So we can't, that cross, when I spoke about take up your cross, is through God's grace, he empowers us to live a, a surrendered, submitted life. Does that make sense? That's great. Yeah, that's great. Maybe somebody else could do a better job on the answer. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, does you know we've been last night? We're in, we're encouraged to invite friends, lost friends to the meeting. We also went out into the streets and uh, brought people back. If you're inviting friends to church that have 
addiction problems. And I know that was one of the testimonies of um, your friend that you played that from that video. And I know that's, um, uh, that's Michael's testimony as well. But just is there, a, is there maybe some, like a special way to invite them, things to consider when you're inviting someone that's got addictions? Um, <clears throat> no, not really. I think, uh, you know, the, just, just getting that church is family yep. and we're inviting people into family and a lot of people, you know, they're, they're hooked on drugs and all this stuff because you look back on their life and they didn't have a mum or a dad or their dad abused, da-da-da-da-da. And I think, you know, I, I love inviting people to church because church is family. And... Uh, so does that kind of answer the question or I'm not trying to sidestep it. And I think any shackle, any chain can be broken with one kiss from the king. So, you know, I, the, the, no matter how broken someone is or damaged they are, one encounter will change their whole life, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I love that. So much of the ministry that we're called to is outside of the church. I, I guess a question that I'd love to hear um, answered or we could discuss around is like, are there limits to this ministry outside of the church? Like how far can we take the prophetic? Like what does the prophetic look like in the marketplace? Maybe like allow us to dream, maybe lift the lid off. What does the prophetic look like in the marketplace? What does the apostolic look like in the marketplace? Um, are they things that operate there? Stuff that anyone can talk into. I'll share a very quick testimony. Um, we've got uh, someone in our church who's um, quite high up in the power company, the lines company that runs the electricity in our place. And we just got hit with a massive cyclone about eight weeks ago, wiped out most of the power in the city, lines broken. And they had all the top engineers sitting in a room and nobody could work out what the next steps were going to be. And he just took a step outside. He asked the Lord and something dropped in his heart. And he walked in and they were all gobsmacked and they implemented what he said, and that's when the power started to return in our city. It was something that they had all the top engineers in the room, and he was the one that got the revelation. So that actually got the lights back on in our city, which was a major thing. Some people were without power for a long time. So um, I'm sure Janet can share many, many stories of, of how that, but that's just one that we've had recently. So, yeah. We had a lady that worked um, in the prisons, and she, um, well, she... The Holy Ghost came upon her while she was down on the floor. God gave her a whole strategy of dealing with a, a drug issue that was going on. It was a real problem that they hadn't been able to get on top of in the in the prison. And God gave her the strategy. So she, uh, when she got up off the floor, she she went to the management and she said, "Look, this, this, this." They implemented it and it ended up being in our newspaper about a whole turnaround of the drug culture within the prison. And it came from a prophetic vision that she had under the anointing. So cool. So not, not limited, obviously, to the church. Not yeah. limited at all. I love um, ministering to business people that I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because that's really cool, actually getting to prophesy over people when you, you're saying stuff you've got no clue yeah. what they're doing or about to do or anything else. And yeah. God's just giving them download. And, and they know it's from God because they know you don't know anything. Right. So that increases their faith when yeah. you, you, you can say specifically what you're seeing. Yeah. 
And then, then seeing them put those strategies in place and yeah. seeing their businesses just take off, yeah. man, that, that yeah. gives me a buzz. Yeah, that's I awesome. I love that. Uh, Daniel, I mean, Daniel comes to mind. I know these are like Old Testament examples, but uh, we've got like Daniel comes to mind. You know, he's ministering to a secular world and we've got Joseph comes to mind and he's saving all of Egypt. And it's, it's cool to like imagine what it would look like to take those places as like preaching the gospel of the kingdom like Michael was covering. It's like it, it actually changes the world, um, which is really cool. Uh, Junith, were you, was your hand up? Did I see your hand? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did anyone want to? She's, she's yeah. asking, do you, would you share that that was from God? So when you get words, um, would you usually share it or would you just give it? How does that often operate, do you think? Well, if I'm praying for a Christian businessman, then they yeah. obviously know. Yeah. Um, if I give a word to somebody, usually, yeah, I think almost always I'll say that I felt God wants you to know this. Yeah. Because I want him to get the glory. It's not about me. I'm, I just see myself as a channel. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I, I want any person that I speak to, I want them to come into a relationship with God. So, to me, that's kind of the whole point. That's good. I'll have to ask him the exact specifics, but they all know he's a Christian and they know that he comes to our church and they know that he prays and he's regularly telling people in the office that he's praying for them. Um, but it was a crisis situation, so it wasn't, a, wasn't sort of the moment where they were going to sit down and discuss all the ins and outs of how he came up with that, but they implemented it and, and got the power back on. But I'm, yeah, I haven't, haven't verified all of that with him, how he did that, but they do know he's a Christian. He's constantly telling the people that work for him that he's praying for them. So I've got no doubt he's been a great witness there. I've got no doubt they know. Yeah, that's right. It's like Daniel; he was leading the way he was leading, and they and they said he's got he's ten times better than everybody else. He had an excellent spirit, but they knew he was worshiping the the, the God of you know Jews, and he he demonstrated that governance, that leadership, and that's what we should be doing. Even apostolically, we should be demonstrating governance in our businesses. Um, prophetically, but it made, like what Graham, when he prayed about the creativeness of God, God's such a creation, creator. We should be the, the most innovative people, creating best songs, best scripts for movies. We should be creating greatest ideas for software that will serve humanity better, you know, computer work, stuff. We should be a cutting edge everything, you know. That's awesome. Very cool, very cool. Um, Question for uh, Daz. Uh, uh, some of them are coming through as Darren. Uh, question for Darren. If you've got a friend uh, that you've invited to church a couple of times before and they keep saying that they're not religious, uh, what, would your be, what would your response be to them? They're just kind of turning it away. They're saying they're not, they're not religious. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I personally would say I'm not religious either. Hello. <laughs> look, at, look at me. Um, but, you know, you, I just think it's that we don't want to ever get to a point where we're arm wrestling people. Mm. You know, if you've got to arm wrestle someone to get them to church, and then you've got to arm wrestle them to walk up the front, then you've got to arm, it's just, that's not the gospel, man. I think, you know, just having people in your world 
that they know that you're praying for them. They know that you are there for them if they need you. I think that's kind of where it's at, eh? And, uh, I mean, I, that's just my perspective. And, um, and just on that last question we just had before, I, I just, God's not that complicated, you know? And I think if we could just understand the simplicity of it. And I went into a, uh, a gym, <clears throat> a gym, a gymnasium uh, in <laughs> Australia, and I walked up to a lady, which was super weird, and I just said, hey, um, my name's Daz, I'm actually a pastor, because that's even, I'm kind of not really, but she, I thought she'd understand, okay, you're not a total loony, or well, you're not trying to hit on me. And I said, I just, when I looked at you, I just felt that God wanted you to know that, just so simple, you are not a mistake. Just those five words. And she just burst into tears. She was halfway through her workout. She just burst into tears. And she goes, are you a fortune teller? And I said, no, no, no. I just really felt that God wanted me to say that to you. But what I didn't know, the day before, she was sitting on her couch, bawling, contemplating suicide, because her mother told her that you were never planned. Just the simplicity of what we carry. So we don't need to overcomplicate it. That was five words. I've got, if you don't believe me, I've got the video. I can put the video on right now of this girl and from the gym. And she got baptized. She's now planted in a church. And it was five simple words in a gym. So beautiful. I, I think we've captured something like what's been really cool to experience is the flow of the fivefold, but seeing the church equipped and opening up our eyes to what's possible in the nations, in the world, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Um, I think it'd be cool. Maybe, Michael, if you can just uh, close us off in prayer and just pray that God, the Spirit of God, will just continue to open up our eyes to all of this, just to, to, the, to the gospel of the kingdom, that revelation, yeah. Why don't we stand? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you that you have rescued us out of the dominion of darkness into your kingdom. We praise you and we honor you and we thank you. And uh, Lord, we stand before you this afternoon. We've received much over this week. We ask and pray, Father God, that the seed sown would find fertile soil in our hearts and our minds. We pray that transformation will come. We pray that your word would bear fruit in the days and the weeks and the months to come. We thank you for this journey we are on together. And we pray, Father, in agreement that we would never lose the sense of awe and excitement and expectation in our journey with you. We thank you that you reach down to us, that you love us. Grant us every good gift we need to be effective disciples. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with your presence. Continue to watch over us and to protect us and keep us in the palm of your hand. We ask this in the precious name.
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Beautiful. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to the GGC Life podcast. We hope you feel encouraged. Be blessed.